Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, George Mombio, the writer and activist, discusses our relationship with food and its relationship with a planet experiencing devastating climate change. Is the era of carte blanche menu all over? George Monbiot is known as a columnist for The Guardian and as an author and campaigner who is telling the world that the time for action on the climate crisis is now. His latest book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, looks at how we can lessen the impact of food consumption and farming on the global environment. He joined our host for this podcast, Alice Thompson, columnist and interviewer for The Times, to talk about it. Here's Alice with more. George Monbiot's book is a rallying cry for how we're destroying the green and unpleasant land and why we need a food and farming revolution that will both sustain us and save the world. The author environmentalist has written another extraordinary book. In it, he argues that farming has been the world's greatest cause of environmental destruction. Cattle, sheep, ploughs and fertilisers have devastated our environment, poisoned the rivers and killed off the wildlife. Yet we still have this romanticised view of farming, grazing and green rolling hills. Luckily... He has also proposed some practical solutions for remaking the global food industry, from changes in farming practices to 3D printed steaks. His best-selling books include Feral, Rewilding the Land, Sea and Human Life, Heat, How We Can Stop the Planet Burning, and Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. George, thank you very much for joining us. I think the book is extraordinary, but I also think it's a chance to find out what George really thinks about farming and um, really about food. And I think everyone has so many views. Uh, No one really can't have a view on food because we're all eating it. So George, the book is a very lyrical book. It's not just polemical. Um, And I'm going to ask you to take us right back to the first chapter when you're in Oxford and you talk about your orchard, which just sounds stunning. And I'm incredibly envious and you share it with other people. Uh, Can you describe it? Just a little bit for us. Thanks, Alice. Well, this is an orchard which um, I share with um, four other families and um, I planted it across three plots on an allotment site uh, 18 years ago now. Um, And at the time, it's hard to believe now, there was almost no demand for allotments and um, the um, local association was desperate to get people to take up the plots because otherwise the council would have reclaimed the site for housing. Um, And uh, and unfortunately, we did lose lots of allotment sites in that time. And now there's desperation to get hold of a plot of land to 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 grow stuff. Um, but I, we were very lucky in that I managed to secure these three plots. They were covered in 10 foot brambles. I hacked my way through it like the, like the prince in Sleeping Beauty um, and and eventually managed to clear the site, dig the brambles out and planted about 40 heritage fruit trees, mostly um, old apple varieties. Um, and um, and it's quite amazing how the ecosystem has changed since I, I did that. We've seen um, yellow ants come in, I don't know where from, but have built these astonishing ant hills everywhere. You can scarcely walk across it now without tripping up because it's covered in these big ant hills. There's, um, I think at the last count, 17 species of wildflower, which... Well, their seeds must have been dormant in the soil. And at this time of year, with the flowers um, in in bloom beneath the trees, the apples forming, the cherries ripening, um, it it is one of 
the most beautiful places um, you could visit. And I feel astonishingly lucky that we have this almost on our doorsteps. Between the five families, we pay £75 a year for the privilege. It's really a, a, a remarkable thing to to, to to be able to enjoy. And you've learned how to scythe as well, haven't you? Which <laughs> I did actually try and I was hopeless at, but you seem to have managed. Well, with the help of my wonderful allotment neighbour, who's a Serbian refugee, she's um, now in her 80s, um, and she watched us with uh, with, um, uh, with utter perplexity and despair as we hacked at the grass and said, no, 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 I, I do this from when I little girl, I show you. And she just, it's like, it's almost like her arms didn't move. She just a little twist of the body and the grass just falls flat all in the same direction. And we were staring. How do you do that? And 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 she sort of taught us the movement. And I can't claim any great expertise, but at least we make it look as if as if someone's been been over it. And we use scythes um not because we're trying to recreate any bucolic idyll, but because we don't want to harm the frogs and the voles and the other creatures that that, that live on, on, on the plot. And it, it's just a much more ecologically sensitive way of managing it. And can you talk about some of those creatures? Because they're worms and spiders and mites and centipedes. And, and then you've also got the bacteria and the fungi. And, and that's what's so extraordinary. So you've travelled all around the world, but actually you realise that in the soil, there was far more life teeming there than there was in the whole of the rest of the world. And and I think we just neglect what's beneath mm. our feet, really, don't we? So I I, I was ecologically bored, in, in truth. I, I'd pretty well discovered everything that there is to discover around here in terms of wildlife, you know, seen all the birds, identified all the plants. And I was thinking, what can I explore? What is there left? And then I thought, oh, hang on, I'm standing on it. And and it is one of the richest and most abundant ecosystems on Earth. It's as diverse and abundant as a coral reef or a rainforest. Um, and uh, like a coral reef, it's a biological structure. It's actually created by the creatures that live in it. And so starting at the bottom of the food chain, um, the bacteria in the soil, which are super abundant and amazingly diverse, they they use the carbon in the soil as cement. They turn it into cements, which they stick together all the little mineral particles with and create the chambers in which they live, which have almost sort of magical properties um, They so in the way that they hold water, hold oxygen and the rest of it, whatever happens to the soil. And then the slightly larger soil creatures, the little microarthropods, the tiny little scuttling creatures, um, which you can only really see with a strong lens, uh, but are unbelievably abundant. You know, you can have like several hundred thousand under one square metre of ground in groups which you never knew existed. I mean, it's like it's like magic. As soon as you find the focal length, it's just woof, the whole thing is alive with all these weird and wonderful forms of life. Well, they then turn those tiny little bacterial clumps of soil into slightly bigger ones for themselves to live in. And then the soil giants, like the ants and the worms, turn those into slightly bigger ones still. And, and the whole structure is fractally scaled, which means that it has the same structure under any level of magnification. And all that makes it tremendously resilient. It's a very, very tough structure, uh, which is why in the state of nature, it doesn't all wash off the land. You know, if it, if it weren't a biological structure, if it were just a heap of minerals and organic material, it wouldn't have that that. Um, robustness and and it would be swept off with any major rainstorm or wind or anything like that and it's only because of the life in the soil that soil exists and it's only because soil exists that we exist and everything that we've made and everything in our lives it's totally dependent on the ground beneath our feet. And Leonardo da Vinci said that actually we know more about the stars than we do about soil. Why is it that we've neglected it for millennia really that we don't we don't discuss it we don't talk about it um, we're almost squeamish about touching soil yeah. and people don't like bringing it into the house I'm always fascinated when people ask you to take your shoes off when they come in there's that sense that you you don't want the earth do you and, and even though it well that that, us. that could be because of dog poo but but yeah these, there's uh, uh, yeah there, there's a, a a pub I went to once called the Jolly Plowman and on the door it said no muddy boots <laughs> um but um yeah it, it it's a um it is a strange thing. It's amazing how we've neglected it. And I think the fact is that soil isn't as beautiful to the eye as many other ecosystems, like a coral reef or a rainforest. But once you understand it, it's as beautiful to the mind. When you work out, 
It's extraordinary biological relations and the way in which the plants are dependent on this astonishingly rich web of life. Then you began to begin to see this as just as wonderful and fascinating and enlightening as snorkeling in, on, on a coral reef. It's very similar. I, I got the same sort of feeling when I brought out this little jeweler's loop, this this lens which you know you buy for six quid online, um, and you find the focal length, and it's like, oh, I'm in a different world. I'm I just in a different world. I love the idea of you world. and your swimming trunks going around in your orchard <laughs> with your sort of. Peering, your magnifying glass. Well, well, well. I was at a farm um, um, uh, when I was researching the book, and um, and a couple of the farmhands came running over, and and they, they said, "Are you okay?" And I said, "Oh, what?" And I said, "Oh my God, we thought you'd died." And I had my, I was lying lying on the ground with my head in a hole, and um, and and I hadn't told anyone what I was doing, so they thought I'd just collapsed because I'd been there for like half an hour, and I was just just seeing what was what was living in the soil. And it's great because. Accessible to people in the way that actually a coral reef isn't, and actually now we're not supposed to be flying as much. It means you can actually look at what's underneath you. But what worries me is that the soil has now become so depleted in so many places, hasn't it? And it's become degraded and ploughed up and over fertilised. And does that make you despair? Was that part of the reason you wrote the book that you were looking at the soil and you realised how depleted it had become? Yes. So, so I think there were two drivers there. What one was right. Sort of very urgent concern about the state of the soil because um, soil being a complex system can absorb a certain amount of stress. I mean, all complex systems and, and just about everything important to us is a complex system, including our own brains and our own bodies. Um, complex systems can ab absorb stress and absorb stress and they have these self-regulating properties which maintain an equilibrium state. But if the stress goes beyond a certain level, they suddenly pass a, a tipping point and collapse. And and soil is no exception to this. Um, so, for instance, if you've degraded and degraded the soil, you might not notice very much until, for instance, a severe drought strikes, whereupon just about overnight, the rate of soil erosion rises 6,000-fold. And that's called a dust bowl. So you get fertile land just, just almost instantly turning into a dust bowl and blowing away. And that, that famously happened in the 1930s in the United States, but it's happened less famously in several other parts of the world since then. So there is that deep concern that this is the entire basis of our lives and most of the terrestrial life on Earth, and yet we're treating it like dirt. But on the other hand, these astonishing new developments in soil ecology, which are so thrilling. They, they, they show us a whole new way, potentially, of farming. Because as we've begun to understand the soil as a biological structure and understand these amazingly intimate relations between plants, bacteria and fungi in particular, um, and, and how um, it, it's really the regulation of um, the, the plant's ac activity in the soil by bacteria above all else, um, we can use that to radically change the way we farm. And, and one of the outcomes of that new ecology is, is the recognition that soil fertility is as much a product of its biology as it is of its chemistry. And if you can get the biology right, you need to use much less chemistry. And that's the problem with the soil is that it is being so overused, isn't it? And you have some extraordinary statistics about how much of the land is used for grazing, which we think looks rather bucolic, actually, when you see these sheep, which I know you dislike, but you, you see them you know, on the countryside and nearly 50% of the countryside, isn't it, is grazing and you have the cows and that's what you think Britain is and to a certain extent. When you go to Wales or if you go to Exmoor, where I am, or Dartmoor, it's covered in, in sort of fluffy clouds and, and it does look rather extraordinary. But on the other hand, it is depleting the soil underneath, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, if an alien spaceship landed here, they would um, the, the green men would walk up to the nearest sheep and say, take me to your leader, because they would assume that they were the dominant life form here and that they've been given the great majority of the land, far more land than, than we occupy. I mean, in the uplands alone, um, sheep, sheep um, occupy more than twice as much land as the entire urban environment 
environment in the UK and yet produce just a really tiny fraction of our food. Worldwide, it's an even bigger thing because, um, you know, we, we quite rightly campaign against urban sprawl and urban sprawl is a really bad thing. It's very bad for the countryside, but also very bad for cities. Um, but... Um, uh, but urban areas worldwide occupy 1% of the planet's surface. And incidentally, loads of the surface is desert or ice cap or, or rocky mountains, which we, we can't make much use of. Um, so, um, but, but farming um, as a whole occupies 40% of the planet's surface. Of that, just the 12% is under crops. And 28% of the surface is for grazing by livestock. And... This is an amazingly profligate way of producing our food because from grazing alone, we get just 1% of our protein. And so it, it's, it's like, well, all that is land which could otherwise have been used to um, uh, hold forests and wetlands and savannas and wild grasslands, the, the, the ecosystems on which a great majority of life on Earth depends and in which, on which the entire Earth system depends. And, and in fact, we threaten our own lives as well as uh, most of the life on Earth by eating away at that Earth system and using so much of it for our own, well, agricultural sprawl. And, um, and, and uh, farming, partly as a result of that, is the biggest cause of habitat destruction, uh, the biggest cause of species loss, the biggest cause of extinction, um, the uh, biggest cause of soil loss, uh, biggest cause of water use, one of the biggest causes of climate breakdown, of water pollution, even of air pollution. And yet somehow it's surrounded by this sort of force field, this moral force field where, where you know, we might criticise industry but we don't apply the same standards to farming. Well, we have a very romantic view of farmers, and in, in many ways that is because in, you know, we are nurtured by them and we 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 are living off them. But mm. you also talk it, about... It's not just because of... So, so, sorry. I was going to say, it's also, you talk about chickens and chicken farming, and that's not very romantic, is it? And actually a lot of the damage that farmers can do is to our river system and particularly in Wales, I've just been in the Wye Valley and, and you've written very well in your book about what happens to rivers if farmers aren't in tune with their soil and if they are degrading their soil. And how does that happen? So uh, the Wye Valley is a very good example because um, in um, Powys and Herefordshire alone, um, in the catchment of the River Wye, the councils have given permission for chicken factories. I mean, they call them barns, but they're actually huge, great steel factories with tens of thousands of chickens crammed into each one, housing 20 million birds. And and there's lots of problems with them, but, but, but the big problem as far as rivers are concerned is that those birds poo. Um, they eat a huge amount of feed, which comes generally from the other side of the world, soya from... Um, cleared land in, in Brazil, for example, um, and that contains a lot of minerals. And the majority of those minerals um, are excreted by, by the chickens. And then the dung is spread on the fields and the farmers say, well, we're fertilising the fields. But there's far too much dung for the fields to absorb and for the plants to use. And so a, a huge amount of the, the, the minerals in that dung, they wash off into the River Wye and its tributaries. And the result has been the remarkably rapid transformation of that stunning, treasured, highly protected river into little more than an open sewer. I mean, in the, in, at the height of summer, July and August, it stinks. I mean, it really stinks. And if you swim in it, you come out, it feels like your skin is covered in liquid snot. It's disgusting. I mean, I, I'm never swimming in it again after that horrible experience. And, and, it's, and it's because of all this chicken poo and the minerals in it washing off the land into the river. They cause these blooms of single-celled algae um, floating in the water, uh, which sometimes just turn the whole river into this completely opaque, sludgy mass um, and while they produce oxygen during the day, when they respire at night, they draw the oxygen out of the water column. Fish can asphyxiate, the insects can asphyxiate. Just as bad, because of the clouding of the water, almost all the water crowfoot, this 
beautiful flowing weed which um, lives in the river has died because it can't get enough light to photosynthesize. Now water crowfoot is for rivers like the Wye what mangroves are to tropical seas. It's the breeding ground and the nursery and the shelter for a huge range of its life. The the, the little creatures and the fish and, and, and so many of the species there and you lose that, you lose the anchor of the ecosystem and almost all of it has now gone. Um, and and so it's it's a sort of there's this agricultural exceptionalism because these huge factories you know if they were counted as industry they would never have been granted planning permission. So but why because are they they're counted so, as a, why are they so reluctant to change? Do you think because they should be custodians of the country? Is it purely financial that they just can't afford to behave properly and environmentally soundly or? They're not naturally destructive people farmers, I don't find. Why Why do you think that they refuse to see what's going under their feet, really? Well, farmers are very resilient and resourceful and adaptable, and they will follow the financial incentives wherever they take them. And, and at the moment, the, the financial incentives aren't pushing farmers in the right direction. You know, And I'm not blaming... The, 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 individual, the individual farmers. I mean, I think the, the farmers' unions, like the National Farmers' Union, have a lot to answer for with their very powerful and almost entirely destructive lobbying efforts. But the individual farmers, you know, they, they're just trying to make a living. But unfortunately, you know, the whole sector is just regulated all wrong and stimulated all wrong. So, um, for instance, worldwide, we spend half a trillion dollars on farm subsidies, $500 billion poured into farm subsidies. And those subsidies are almost entirely perverse. The great majority go to the biggest, richest landowners. Um, they um, do almost nothing to reduce the price of food. In fact, in some cases, they raise the price of food. And they are almost entirely um, stimulating environmental destruction. In fact, in, in the UK and Europe, you can't claim your so-called basic payments unless the land is in what's called agricultural condition. You don't actually have to produce anything on that land. It just has to look as if it's farmland. And that means it can't host what are called permanent ineligible features that you and I know as wildlife habitat. And so it provides this massive perverse incentive to clear wildlife habitat. And across Europe as a whole, it's one of the most destructive forces on Earth. It's led to the destruction of hundreds of thousands of hectares of really beautiful and amazing places, just so people can claim these these subsidies. Um, so, so it's like, you know, if, if you are trying as a farmer to do the right thing, you have to swim against the current. And when it comes to... Um, uh, issues like the, these chicken units, you know, they're about the only profitable kind of farming that you can pursue in, in the Y Valley, or, or at least um, of livestock farming, because the sheep and the cattle are completely unprofitable, massively loss-making. Farmers there are solely dependent on, on subsidies, and the subsidies are keeping the hills bare with dis their own disastrous impacts. And so farmers want to make money, they strike a contract with one of the big multinationals which have set up processing plants in the region and they um, build these huge chicken factories. Uh, and the problem lies in the fact that the county councils and the Environment Agency and Natural Resources Wales just roll over and say, yeah, yeah, OK, go ahead. But also it's the supermarkets, the isn't it? I mean, and it's the consumers and the supermarkets who also, they, they're... They want the cheap food and they're urging the farmers to produce this cheap food and they're cutting corners at every... I, I, I'm quite sceptical of this cheap food argument. Um, and I think a lot of the time when we talk about cheap food, we're actually covering over issues rather than exposing them. And, and you know, I hear uh, some wonderful Rivers campaigners talking about cheap food and I'm going to have a word with one or two of them because actually what they're talking about is meat. Um, it's, it's not so much the price of stuff, it's what it is. What are we eating here? Um, I mean, if you have a plant-based diet, you massively reduce the, the the impact of your diet, not just the greenhouse gas impact, the amount of land you use, um, the amount of, of, of chemicals that are used, um, the amount of, 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 of processing machinery. I mean, just about everything, you, you, you reduce your impacts. Um, and... And the and, and and so a lot of the time, you know, we're actually talking about the components of the diet, not how cheap or expensive they are. And you know, let's not forget that many people, even in this country, the fifth or sixth richest country on earth, now can't afford to eat well. Uh, 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 as the 
UNFAO says, um, Food and Agriculture Organization, a good diet costs five times as much as one that's merely adequate in terms of calories. And even in, in countries like the UK, there are millions of people who can't afford a good diet. So it's not really that food is too cheap, it's that good food is too expensive. But more importantly, that we're all trying to eat the kind of food which imposes a massive burden on the planet, which is primarily animal products. And the planet can't afford it. We and just you're don't vegan have the yourself. Space. So that, do you think it has to be veganism? Um, and that is, that's one of the main answers. I was going to ask it because actually yeah. a lot of the book, you do feel that that is one of the solutions is, is to yeah. actually stop eating any meat at all. And also for people in food banks that it... it it is so costly, but you talk very, I think, very interestingly about the fact that people can be overweight at food banks and people say, oh, but look at the obesity problem and people are overeating. But actually, it's because you've got the wrong calories and the wrong nutrients and they were either eating very cheap, very manufactured food or were eating meat. And what you need to have is more of what comes out of your orchard or you know, vegetable gardens and and it's more about grains and how you in, you introduce that into people's diets and how you incentivise people to eat a different sort of diet. Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I think there's several issues here. Uh, on the issue of obesity, it, it is overwhelmingly a, a, a disease of poverty and it's, vector, it's a communicable disease whose vectors are corporations. And you have the junk food manufacturers which go to enormous lengths to formulate food, which is very hard to resist. Once you start eating it, you want to eat more because they work with 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 chemists and neuroscientists to trigger those impulses in our brain and override our appetite control but what's your guilty one that you have oh well actually i i i'm really i'm i'm really guardian you know i i eat a, a horribly woke diet um not, not but but not actually not not because I'm necessarily that way inclined. I mean, I'm very greedy, but I just don't like sweet stuff, uh, which is incredibly fortunate. You know, it just just happens to be that way. However, I should, before I sound too virtuous, I should say that I really resisted a plant-based diet for a long time. Um, and and I, I came up with all sorts of excuses for doing so. But what triggered it eventually was that I was down in, in Devon on the River Culm, I don't know if you, you know it, with, with some friends, which is, is, is meant to be the most beautiful river. And it's, it's, it's meant to have salmon running up it, brook lampreys, wild trout, um, mayflies, kingfishers, otters, everything. And it is, it's meant to be a really great place for watching wildlife. But when I turned up, uh, there was a, a stretch I, I came to explore um, about two miles long was just a sewer. The only thing living in it was sewage fungus. And I traced that to a pipe which was pouring into the river, this f f disgusting brown sludge. I followed that up the hill and found that the pipe was leading out of a, a pair of slurry lagoons. It had been deliberately constructed to spill the, the overspill into the river, um, attached to a dairy unit where, where um, there were lots of cows. When I looked at Google Earth, I saw that the dairy unit had been doubled in size, but the slurry lagoons were the same size. Instead of going to the expense of expanding the slurry lagoons, they just were tipping it in the river. So I did what any good citizen would do, and I phoned the Environment Agency Pollution Hotline, and I said, I found this horrendous case of pollution. Well, thanks very much, sir. Well, we'll, we'll go and take a look. And, and I, I'd taken photos, and I wrote it up for the Guardian and it caused a stink commensurate with the stink in, in the river and um, then two weeks later I phoned them up and said so so what's going on and they said uh, well we've decided not to enforce sir because it's not a serious case I said well what do you mean it's not a serious case they've killed two miles of river and and they said well so we found no evidence of a fish kill of course you found no evidence of a bleeding fish kill. There aren't any fish left to kill. They've been pouring this stuff in the river for six months. Everything died ages ago. Well, thanks very much for your concern, sir. Goodbye. And it's like, so I wrote another article saying, what does a farmer have to do to get prosecuted? Detonate an atom bomb. And, and in response to that, I had two whistleblowers from the Environment Agency get hold of me and said, we've been instructed from the top not to enforce against dairy farms. That's what's going on here. And I thought, OK, if you're not going to regulate this industry, I'm not going to eat its products anymore. And, and given the enormous harm that both dairy and egg production is doing, um, I, I, I think vegetarianism makes no sense. You know, it, it, you really, to, to have 
an, an environmentally benign diet, you, you've got to go the whole hog. Oh, no, well, got to get away from the whole hog and, um, and go towards a plant-based, a plant-based diet. Now, if you'd read the first half of your book only, you would be very, very depressed because you, you lay out the case for what has gone so drastically wrong in Britain and around the world. But then the second half of the book, you do talk about these extraordinary characters who have actually begun to change farming and change the soil and can you introduce us to one or two of those because they're very um entertaining really and they're not these what i was interested in is they are on quite a small scale they're not very rich they're not like some of the rewilders who had the money to buy up land and to sit on it and do nothing these are people who didn't have very much money are having to live off the land still Yes, well, the classic case of this is this remarkable man, Ian Tolhurst, or Tolly, as everyone calls him. He, he left school when he was 15, no qualifications, no money. Um, he scratched around trying to make a living. He was, he was desperate to get into farming. Um, his, his sole interest was grow, growing stuff and trees. Those were his two interests. And um, eventually managed to rent um, at, at a reduced, below market rent, um, seven hectares of land in South Oxfordshire, um, which was really poor land, considered very poor. It was grade 3B, which most people would say is only good for pasture, um, 40% stone. Um, it's very noisy soil, you know, because it, if you when you work it, it's like clatter, clatter, clatter because of all the stone in it. And astonishingly... He he sort of it, well. It, it, first of all, he couldn't find any manure that he liked the look of. He, he he thought it was all contaminated and nasty. And he was right actually, because you know the sources that were available were really you wouldn't want to put it on your land. And so he thought, right, what, what are other people doing? He looked at a Chinese system and thought, well, maybe I can use green manures to draw up nutrients from the subsoil. And he gradually experimented and his experiments have now lasted 34 years and every year he tried something new and a little bit new and a little bit new and astonishingly throughout that whole period he's added no fertilizer and no manure to his soil and having cracked the technique his fertility has just risen and risen and his productivity has risen and risen he's a vegetable and fruit grower and these these are considered very hungry crops to need a lot of manure or fertilizer but he's got none at all and his yields have now hit the lower bound of what conventional producers are growing on good land. It's the most extraordinary thing. And what he's done is to anticipate the new developments in soil ecology, which show that, as I was saying, fertility is as much a product of soil biology as it is of the chemistry. And he, he, he appears to have tweaked the relationship between plants, bacteria and, and, and fungi in, in the soil. Um, by very subtly altering the carbon content um, because um, aerated agricultural soils, um, uh, you know, all, all being, being complex systems, they're, they're in an equilibrium state unless you completely destroy them. Um, and one aspect of that equilibrium state is a, a carbon to nitrogen ratio of 12 to 1. And it seems if you can keep them in that zone, then you can um, uh, get them to do what really I see as, as one of the destinations of effective agriculture, which is to get the bacteria and the fungi to deliver just the nutrients that the plant needs because the plant can't gather the nutrients itself from the soil. It has to, they have to go through bacteria and fungi to get to the plant um, and then lock up those nutrients when they're not needed. And that locking up, uh, called immobilization is just as important as the delivery of of nutrients which is called mineralization because unless you immobilize the nutrients they will wash off the land and he's found that by keeping the soil watertight in other words by keeping it covered at all times with plants growing all the time and not exposing bare soil to the sun and the wind and the rain and by um, adding a tiny amount of, of wood chip at, at certain key points in the rotation, uh, he's managed to just alter that relationship a little bit sufficient to completely transform the way that his soil works and to become this highly productive grower on the most unpromising land. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv this episode is brought to you by reese's peanut butter cups in breaking news leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate however it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the reese's because when you want something sweet you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And could you scale that up or is he just one of a kind? Is he because he's so passionate and he's working seven days a week and he's not really expecting much in return? It's an obsession really for him, isn't it? How can you encourage other farmers to do that? Because it's so intensive time-wise, really. Well, well, the good thing about horticulture is that everyone who does it is an obsessive and you kind of have to be because the returns really are not great. You know, the whole economics of agriculture is crocked one way or another. And... um, and you just have to be completely obsessed with with growing vegetables to be in that business because otherwise you wouldn't bother. And um, so uh, certainly among the organic uh, growers I meet, uh, Tolly is is God. You know they all want to be Tolly, and and they're all trying to replicate his techniques with, with varying degrees of success. Um, um, we don't quite know why. It seems to work very well in some places and less well in other places. And it could be that we just don't know enough about what's going on under the soil. So one of the things I call for in the book is an Earth Rover programme. We've got this Mars Rover programme, right? We're spending billions of pounds finding out what's going on on the surface of a different planet. But it'd be quite nice to know what's going on on the surface of our own planet. Um, And we know so little about the state and condition of soil at any one time that we might as well be exploring the surface of Mars, for, for all we know. And let, let's spend some billions improving our knowledge on this planet, because actually it might be a little bit more habitable than a planet without an atmosphere and oxygen and those other luxuries which make life quite pleasant. And do you think you can encourage farmers to do that or not? Because I think probably the most people who are most critical of you, George, if I'm honest, are the farmers, aren't they? So how do you bring them round to your side? How do you encourage them to change their ways? Well, the first thing to say is that I'm not trying to bring all farmers around to my side. I mean, it, it, when it comes to livestock, it's similar to the oil industry. You know, I'm not trying to win the fossil fuel companies over to the vision of leaving all the fossil fuels in the ground. I'm trying to help trigger societal change, which um, ensures that fossil fuels are left in the ground. And I'm never going to persuade livestock farmers that an end to livestock farming is a good thing. So you want to get um, rid of them then, really? No, I don't want to get rid of them at all. Um, I want them to do something different. And what I want them to do is to be employed by us for ecological restoration. I mean, given that all extensive livestock farming, in other words, outdoor livestock farming, is entirely dependent on farm subsidies. And those farm subsidies are causing mass destruction. I think we should repurpose that money and um, and and pay farmers instead for ecological restoration. And in fact, um, there's there's quite a lot of work now 
uh, showing that you um, that a nature-based economy tends to employ more people and generate better incomes than the traditional um, agricultural industries that it replaces. Um, and so, you, you know, the offer would be to farmers, right, you know, we're, we're not going to pay you to denude the hills anymore and, and ensure that all the baby trees are nibbled out so that um, when the old ones die, there aren't any to replace them. We're, we're going to pay you to do the opposite. We're going to pay you to um, to bring back trees, to take down the fences, to block up the drainage ditches, to, to restore rich, vibrant habitats full of wildlife, abundant and diverse. Um, and you'll have to do less work than you're doing at the moment, chasing sheep over rain-sodden hills. What's not to like? So what they would say probably, particularly after the pandemic and now with Ukraine, is that we need to be self-sufficient in food. We can't turn over our countryside and become these rather sort of virtuous um, environmentalists in Britain and then import all our food in, not just because we're flying it in, but because actually you're then going to be doing exactly the same to other countries around the world and probably countries with less money and who are less well off. So should we really be dumping our problems onto another country? How do you carry on being, you know, sustaining your own country with food while also not doing as much to the countryside? So, so the first thing to say is that um, extensive livestock farming is astonishingly unproductive. So you lose almost no food if you stop doing extensive, in other words, pasture-fed um, beef and lamb. And, and organic pasture-fed beef and lamb, incidentally, are the most damaging major farm products on earth. They're the worst things you can possibly do because of the enormous land take and the huge ecological opportunity cost of that and the huge carbon opportunity cost. So well, you, you lose about almost... about being the most destructive... Um, yeah, that's ever existed on the earth, don't you? Which it it is. No, it's it's true. It's true. That, well, well, no, dinosaurs weren't destructive. They were the ecosystem or part of it. So, um, so, so you, you, um, you, you would lose almost nothing in terms of food production. In fact, you would gain far more in terms of ecological restoration than you'd lose in food production if you take the outdoor livestock out of the equation. As for the indoor livestock, you know they don't contribute to our food security at all because they're entirely dependent on feed most of which is imported from elsewhere. And so people say, oh, look, we've got some local pork or some local chicken. And you say, yeah, but that local pork or local chicken is fed in soya from Brazil. So is it really local? No, I don't think so. You know, you just put that soya f- through a pig and then you call it local. Um, so so we, we actually damage our food security by that dependency on animal feed from elsewhere. So what we should be focusing on is 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 producing... Um, I mean, you know, we should definitely be seeing a switch towards a plant-based diet, but producing um, food in, in productive places as effectively as we can. And we definitely should be concentrating on high yields, but with the lowest possible impact inputs required to achieve those yields. And that's where the new soil science comes in. And also um, synthetic it, food you're interested in, aren't you? So you're quite interested in the sort of bacteria-enriched pancakes, mm-hmm. um, yes. which is another yeah, element no, that people please, worry about. Yeah, no, please don't call it synthetic. I mean, it's, it's like this is, this is this is cultured food in the same way that everything we eat is cultured, except for wild stuff you might gather. You know, we've we've bred our plants to produce certain kinds of grain and certain kinds of nutritional characteristics. We've turned wild boars into these these massive long white pigs with um uh, with, with 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 huge bodies and we've turned jungle fowl into these chickens which mature in five weeks and i want us to turn soil bacteria into um, um the basis of our protein and and fat supply it's, it's beginning to happen already and you've and tasted we, we, one of them haven't you so what do they taste yeah. like well, so yes, I was the first person on earth outside the lab to eat a pancake made from bacterial flour, a small flip for man. And um, it uh, remarkably tasted identical to a pancake. I really, in a blind tasting, could not have told the difference because basically what you're doing with a pancake is you're mixing carbohydrate with um, a source of protein and fat. You know, you add your um, egg and milk to, to wheat flour. In this case, because the bacterial flour, which comes out at the end of um, this brewing process, is about 60% protein and, and 30% fat or so, you have to dilute it with wheat flour, otherwise you'd make an omelette. Uh, but basically, it's, just, it's the same process. But... Yeah, we're not just trying to make pancakes here. We're trying to change the whole diet. And and you could um, eliminate the need for this most damaging of all activities, which is livestock farming, but also for soya 
and for palm oil and coconut and, and these other products, which are also tremendously damaging to the living planet, not as damaging as livestock, not least because um, livestock eat a lot of them. And so it sort of doubles the uh, damage, um, but still very damaging. And it would be lovely to lovely to eliminate them as well. And and you can use um, this bacterial flower um, to create almost anything which is similar to what we eat today but also a whole new cuisine that we can't even imagine at the moment just as the first farmers in the neolithic who caught a wild cow weren't thinking of camembert or burgers or burgers or so we don't or, need yes, to call or, them uh, vegan any... sausage rolls we could do something completely different now i'm going to open well, exactly. up to some very good questions here uh, the first one i can see which actually is great is how can we help children see soil as a magical thing to explore rather than see it as a source of dirt yeah, no, I, 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 that's a lovely question. And I, I would so love to see that happening, not least because everyone has access to it. Um, I, I mean, there's a couple of words of warning that, that there's only certain conditions under which you're going to see a huge pr profusion of life because it's very seasonal. And um, a really good time is this time of year, as long as it's damp and, and warm. Um, because that's what soil life really loves. And so it, it sort of comes and goes, you know, when, when the conditions are right, you'll get a massive proliferation of life and you'll see something in every speck of soil, um, something amazing, which is just sort of hard to believe you're seeing because half the time it's like, I don't even know which phylum this is in. You know, it's like sort of really, really bizarre life forms. It's got 12 pairs of legs. What has 12 pairs of legs? It seems to have two antennae sticking out the back and two at the front. What on earth is, you know, it's, it's really quite magical. Um, amazing, the, the, the things. But but you have to get the conditions right. So you, you can't turn up in the middle of winter or during a drought and take a lens to the soil and expect to see very much. But but if you if you do it in the right conditions, you know, this the, this lens I use, I'll just show, show you here. It's a jeweler's loop. Um, um, look, it's, uh, it, it, it costs six quid online. Yeah, and you can act, you can buy also you can get these um, plug-in microscopes now electronic microscopes that you can plug into your computer, which I think cost eighteen pounds, and you can uh, they're so simple to use now, and you can just um, stick a piece of soil underneath the microscope and 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 you get even greater magnification and it comes up on your screen so you can see everything and schools could do it screen. too, couldn't they? Also, I d it, I disagree so that children are very squeamish. I think. Um, Actually, children rather like centipedes, don't they? I've just interviewed yeah, yeah. Maya Rose Craig, the bird girl, oh, she's who's great, 19. she's isn't she? Brilliant, yeah. She found a maggot in her head when she was little, when she was Lovely. birding in yeah, Africa. Wonderful. And it was the parents that didn't like it. She was absolutely riveted yeah. by having a maggot yeah, in her head, which yeah. lived in her head for quite a bit before they managed to squeeze it out. And I was very proud of my parasites as a child. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and actually, I think that once children overcome that initial fear, they rather enjoy digging around, don't they? Mm. Now, we've got another one, which is, wouldn't the kind of high-tech lab-grown food you advocate become just another part of the global food system and be as exploitative as the present one? And why would the producers of these new kinds of food be any less likely to create an addictive Krispy Kreme donuts from lab-grown fat and sugar as they currently are with traditionally baked foodstuffs? And that's from Katerina. I think that's a great question. No, it's a really good question, and it's absolutely fundamental here. So at the moment, we already have this massive corporate concentration in the food chain, and it's tremendously dangerous. Um, you know, on one estimate, four corporations uh, control 90% of the global grain trade. And... And, you know, the most frightening papers, I read an awful lot of frightening papers. I mean, I read over 5,000 papers while researching this book, but the scariest of all were those going back 10 years or so with, farm, with scientists saying the global farm system or the global food system looks a bit like the global financial system in the years approaching 2008, and no one paid any attention to them. And what we're seeing with Ukraine, you know, Ukraine, the, the, Russia's invasion of Ukraine didn't create the food crisis. It's exposed the food crisis but as these papers were showing it's been there all along and part of the problem is these corporations are now too big to fail um, their behavior is synchronized shocks get easily transmitted through the system the world has has polarized between super exporters and super importers and this makes the whole system really fragile and vulnerable and and katarina is absolutely right we we must not replicate that 
or indeed all the other dysfunctions of the food system with these new technologies. Now, precision fermentation, this new kind of brewing, is a great gift to the world, which comes along just as we need it, because it, we can use it to replace the really devastating impacts of livestock farming and indeed of, of, of certain kinds of arable production as well. Um, but if it gets captured by big corporations and if they um, impose um, intellectual property rights over it and use it as a form of corporate concentration, that gift will be stolen from us. Um, and, and the enormous potential which would allow small businesses everywhere to set up their own breweries on the edge of a town um, wherever they are, you know, and especially in poorer nations which have a lot of sunlight because you need the sunlight to, to produce the hydrogen on which the bacteria feed, um, uh, you, you, which could totally transform food security, food, food sovereignty, food justice, everything, that, that people would suddenly have access to this tremendously rich source of food which could be turned into any product to, to meet local markets. But that potential will be destroyed if we allow the big corporations to take over. And, and so now that we're right at the beginning of this, we need to mobilise to ensure that this, this really important technology, potentially the most important of all environmental technologies, is not captured by big business. Corporate intellectual property is a threat to the world, and if we don't destroy it, it will destroy us. And where do you stand on insects, seaweed and algae becoming a staple, staple part of the diet, Stella says? So how do you incorporate them into the diet? Are you not yet ready to eat insects? Oh, no, I've been eating insects for a very long time. In fact, I've eaten many, many species of insects experimentally. You know, so uh, which quite, is your favourite? Which have you continued to eat? Um, so, I mean, I, I, I do... I, I, my, the tastiest of all, um, and this is going to sound very weird, so so occasionally we've had infestations of them in, in the orchard and, and um, you know, and I'm quite prepared to put a lot of labour into this orchard. We don't use any pesticides or any fertilisers or anything like that. So I will pick off pests by hand. And the tastiest of them of all, because the best way of disposing of them is to eat them, are earwigs. Earwigs are delicious. And when we've got a massive earwig, I mean, I wouldn't eat them, you know, if, if there's not loads of them. But when you've got massive earwig infestation, when there's an earwig in every flower, um, then I'll, 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 I'll go around eating them. And they're a great meal. They're you don't really, need to dip them in anything? Salt? No, sugar? No, 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 just plain. No, you just, you had, you had to sort of bite them quite quick so that the pincers don't pinch you inside of your mouth. But no, they're, they're great. But... Um, Is that because you I, won't I, kill them first? You have to eat them live? Well, well, you just, I mean, you kill them by biting. <laughs> but... But, but anyway, I, I mean, I, I'm not advocating this as a general um, programme for feeding the world. I mean, the problem with insects is that the whole story is that, oh, well, insects can eat our waste products and then we can eat the insects. But it never works like that. With everything we were told was going to be f um, fed on waste products like biodiesel and biogas and biomass and bioethanol, um, in every single case... They, um, they, they use the idea of, of, of using waste to, to get their foot in the door and then they produce dedicated crops for, the, for, those, um, for, for that production. And that's because it's a lot easier to get consistent products, a lot cheaper with, with dedicated crops. You don't have all the difficulties of gathering, gathering waste from different sources and it's going to be really inconsistent and all of that. And so I, I just don't trust the promises at all. And the great thing about the bacteria, by contrast, is that they don't need a growing medium. They don't need to feed on any photosynthetic products. We don't have to grow anything for them to live on. They just combine hydrogen and oxygen and carbon dioxide and they make their own body mass from those. It's a, it's a process in, uh, which is analogous to photosynthesis, but it's much more efficient than photosynthesis. And, and so you don't need to be... Someone Sorry. here I was going to say has written, they quite want to know how the public can, first of all, get to eat this kind of food and then actually see the showcase of how you, you, you know, well, like with Tolly, that how, how you actually change the soil. How can they see soil that is enriched and oh, yeah. how, can they, right. how can they actually see Regenesis in in progress? How can they go sure. and find out what to do, really? Well, I mean, that, that's a very big question because, I, I, I mean, what I'm looking at is, is a whole load of different um, techniques and approaches in, in this book. I mean, one thing I haven't mentioned yet is possibly the biggest of all, which is the way that we grow our grain crops. 
And at the moment, nearly all our green crops um, are, um, come from annual plants, right, which are plants that live and die within one year. Um, and it's uh, and and annual plants, uh, large areas covered by them, are very rare in nature, and they they generally happen only in the wake of a disaster, like a fire or a landslide or a volcanic eruption. So, to grow our annual crops we have to create a disaster every year and we have to plow the land or spray the land and kill everything that lives there and then use lots of fertilizer to establish the plants and, and the rest of it and and there's been a dream of scientists for for over a century now which is to grow perennial grain crops and finally at last that dream has now been realized and uh, a group called the land institute in kansas um has is developing a whole range of perennial grain crops where you can harvest the same plant year after year um, it, and, it, and without having to dig it up and start all over again the following year. And the, the, the one that's now fully commercialised is a variety of rice. And in Yunnan province in China, they've had six consecutive harvests from the same plants and the yield is still the same as from annual rice. And it means much less soil erosion. Um, it, it means less fertiliser, uh, less establishment difficulty altogether, much less labour for the farmers, which um, makes it very attractive to them. Um, and and I think uh, and also these perennial plants are almost certain to be far more climate resilient because they have much bigger roots, deeper roots and much stronger structures above ground. And so they're less likely to be susceptible to climate shocks. And indeed, the Land Institute, um, it's it's been growing its perennial sunflowers alongside annual sunflowers. And one year there was a drought which completely wiped out the annual sunflowers and the perennials just sailed through it. No trouble at all. So so I think so. So what I'm trying to say is, is, is you've asked a huge question, you know, because there's lots and lots of different things that we need to be doing. And it's going to be different in every case. So someone else has asked a question about regenerative farming and the way that people graze. And you've got farmers like James Rebanks, who is a regenerative farmer. And I've seen his farm up in Yorkshire and it is rather extraordinary. And and it does seem to be very productive. But also you see the wildlife has returned. And they have said since cows and sheep are quite good fertiliser producers and can regenerate the soil with their manure... Is there no room at all for them in your future system? They put in brackets, I'm a big fan of you, by the way. Um, so I don't think they're being massively sure. critical, but could you do both? Because there are lots of farmers who are managing to balance both farms mm. with cattle and sheep and also sure. production and also have some wilding on the side. Can, can you manage to do sure. it all? So, so I've read James's books and, um, and they're very well written. They're quite beautiful, really. But I don't think they make any useful contribution to helping us find a way out of this dilemma. And the reason is they've got no numbers in them at all. It's like there's no figures for how much food he, he's producing um, or how much his system can produce. And generally, the yields of systems like that are extremely low. And, and the more you green them, the lower those yields become, which means the more land you must occupy. And all that's land which could otherwise be occupied by rich, thriving, living systems. Now, you could go really, really low, like NEP does, that the famous um, re rewilding project um, um, Isabella Tree and, and Charlie Burrell have, have, have in Sussex, which um, has got fantastic wildlife, but it's got almost no production. The production Although it started is really, farming again, really hasn't tiny. it now? Well, well, on on another part of their farm, they're now doing. But then, what they have to do there is to raise the yield, and that means you reduce the wildlife value, and so you constantly got that payoff. So, so you know, um, cattle and sheep, or I mean, sheep really aren't compatible with anything in this country. But but cattle, um, they can only be compatible with a really rich living system if their numbers are really tiny. And that means you can feed hardly anyone. And so if, if the whole of the UK, all the farmland in the UK were turned into NEP, we'd produce 75 calories of meat um, per person per day, which is about a one thirtieth of our calorific requirement and nothing else. And, and when people talk about this whole less and better agenda of so-called regenerative grazing, which um, formerly known as grazing in most cases, it's really, it's just been rebranded. You know, this is tobacco industry tactics, which, which a lot livestock industry is using in in most cases you know some people are sincere there's an awful lot of bullshit involved as well um when 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 you um um uh, when, when people talk about you know we, we should be eat less and better meat um if if that was the only meat which was being produced which seems to be the sort of foodie agenda you know that this is the only meat we should eat then 
Um, rich people would eat it every day, right? Um, it would be phenomenally expensive, but millionaires would be able to eat it whenever they liked. Nobody else would be able to eat it. And, and so it's sort of posing as a universal solution. It's not by any means. It would mean that basically everyone went vegan except the 1% and they would be allowed, able to continue eating meat. So it's not really a solution to anything. Now, as for the issue of manure, it's very interesting. Um, so uh, what, one of the papers I read um, um, suggests that um, the nitrogen losses from manure are 37% greater than those from artificial fertilizer. Now, artificial fertilizer is bad enough. You know, you're losing more than 50% of, of, of the nitrogen that you put on the land. But, but manure is even worse. And the reason is that it, it's not synchronized with the plant growth cycle. It, it releases its minerals slowly, um, which you'd think would be a good thing, but that means you have to put it on the land long before the plants are ready to absorb it, and it carries on releasing long after the plants have been harvested. And so it keeps leaking and leaking and leaking. And you think, well, in that case, how do you sustain an organic system? Because, you know, the whole idea about organic farming is meant to be that it, it, you close the nutrient loop. And uh, so I went and looked at the Soil Association organic standards. I was profoundly shocked it turns out that you can plug that uh, that nutrient gap by bringing in conventional manure from conventional farms bringing manure from other farms which aren't organic so in other words you can use artificial nitrogen as long as it's been through someone else's animals first Moreover, so i think we're gonna to have to stop on manure which is probably a good place to stop actually so we've done soil we've done manure um you're very anti-sheep um i feel slightly sorry for the sheep i feel quite sorry for a lot of the farmers who I think are probably under your system going to have to retire and go to do something else but you you have come up with solutions too which is the really important part and actually I will now have a bacteria pancake which I had vowed never to have um, and I think we do have to look at it in a very different way now don't we um, and I think probably the solution is everyone trying out all sorts of different approaches until we get to a stage where our soil is, as you say, just teeming with life. And I think that's the biggest takeaway I took from the book was that I must just look underneath my feet, that we must look at the soil and we must complain about the dryness and the aridness of our soil. And we should really, instead of looking up at the stars, you know, look down below us. And I probably will go out. I'm not sure um, I will be crawling around too much, um, but I would love to... I think spend more time doing that. And it means we don't have to go on holiday so we can avoid all those queues at Heathrow as well, can't we? <laughs> That's right. I know. It, it is an amazing ecosystem to explore. And you will see more of the major branches of the animal kingdom in a handful of soil than on a week's safari in the Serengeti. My thanks to George Monbiot and to our audience and to everyone who asked a question and also to Intelligence Squared. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Alice.